you enjoyed my friends Connell and Donald. We're talking about Trinity. Inside Orthodox Christianity, right? There, there's a multitude of diversity. And we can have unity in that diversity of orthodoxy, of orthodoxy that we glean from God's word. We can sit across the table and disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ inside orthodoxy. And we can even pound the table in righteous anger at their abuse and misuse according to our way of doing things inside the nuances of that orthodoxy. Trinity, however, is a doctrine that draws a line in the sand and determines who we can sit at the table with and call Christian. We can't understand the nature of God without Trinity. Can't do it. It's impossible. How we understand Jesus is Trinitarian because it's based on what Jesus said about himself. If Jesus is who he said he is, then we have to wrestle with the Trinitarian nature of God. It's required. The doctrine of the Trinity had to be developed because people already in the pinning of the New Testament canon were bringing strange teachings about Jesus that didn't line up with what Jesus himself was saying. John... In 2 John chapter 1, verse 7 to 11, had to actually address this. Now keep in mind, what I'm about to read for you here in 2 John 1, 7 to 11, is John speaking to those who say they are Christians, yet bring a strange teaching about Jesus. And John helps us draw that line in the sand so that we see how this... Belief and understanding of what Jesus said and did affects how we see the nature and character of God. Thus setting the stage for us to understand God as three yet one. Here's 2 John 1, 7-11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Wow. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So even there, John is distinguishing the nature of Jesus from distinct from the Father while being the Son and Jesus being distinct at the same time God that has to get articulated and wrestled with. And look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. You read that one before? Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now what he's not talking about are our friends who are of another faith. By all means, invite them into your home, feed them and teach them about Jesus Christ. And offer them the ability to repent and believe the good news, right? By all means. But one who comes calling themselves Christian and brings a funky teaching about Jesus... 
Don't even let them in. I'll tell you a story. I was in the backyard. This has been eight or nine years ago, and I was on a bobcat doing some work. And there was a guy, and I won't name his uh, false teaching because he you would recognize him. I, I don't want to just throw people under the bus unnecessarily. I'm trying to grow up a little bit. But he was wearing his typical uniform that those people wear as they walk our neighborhoods and walk up to your door. And I guess he saw a guy on a bobcat and thought, you know, well, bobcat guy, right? What he didn't know is my background and my education and my training as a translator of Greek and Hebrew into English and all that fun stuff. So he asked if he could stop and had his child with him. He's going to try to convert me to his false teaching. And so he started working in about Jesus and denying the Trinity. And I just said, hey, man, you mind if I run in? I'm going to get my Greek New Testament real quick and we'll have a conversation. He goes, no, 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 that's good. No, no, you don't have to go get it. No, no, let me go get it. Let me go get it. And I said, you, you can come down here with me and, and hang out on my back porch. And I even said, I'm not going to let you in my house because the word says not to let you in because you bring a false teaching about Jesus. And I want to show you where it's false. He said, I got to go. And he took off. Now, I wasn't trying to be rude. But I was trying to obey the fact that here's a person who would say they're a Christian that bringing a false teaching about Jesus that will lead other people to an eternal separation from Jesus Christ punished at his behest because they haven't believed the gospel. Right? So it matters who we say God is, who we say Jesus is, and how he has revealed himself. And the Bible takes it so seriously that it says if there are people who call themselves Christians and bring a false teaching about Jesus, don't let them in your house. Because if you do, you're taking part in their wicked works. So you think it matters what we believe? It matters infinitely what we believe. So when we come to this doctrine of the Trinity, Augustine says this. If you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. If you try to explain it, you lose your mind. (laughs) We're dealing with infinity. My friend that I just came from Toronto, helping him train his church planters this week. Uh, was sharing a story as we're talking about the Trinitarian nature of God and its implications on church multiplication. He's got his Ph.D. Uh, at Southeastern Seminary, and while he was doing his Ph.D. work, he was talking with a master's level student. He was sharing with him how he had a doctoral seminar on the Trinity this semester. And the student remarked, Trinity, what are you guys going to talk about for the whole semester? With the idea that somehow... This is about a day's worth of information, wondering what they're going to do with the rest of their time, the rest of their 16 weeks. And Mike's response to him was, we're talking about infinity. Like, we're, we're talking about the nature of God who has no beginning and has no end. How can we do it justice in a semester? We're going to know him perfectly in eternity and still be unpacking its realities 10,000 years past it. And so we embark this morning on a journey that we can't complete. And we embark on a journey which we can barely scratch the surface. So what I hope to do this morning is not give you a bunch of philosophical stuff. I want to just take us to the text of Scripture. I want to give it to you and then let you go and unpack it yourself in your small groups, radical life groups, as you guys talk about the nature of God. Because in the nature of God, we learn the nature of Jesus. And we learn the nature of Jesus. We learn the good news of the gospel of His kingdom, His coming, His living, His dying, His rising, His ascending, His atonement for sin, and His bringing all things back under His rule so that those who repent and believe can know Him, walk with Him, and participate with Him in the good news of the kingdom. And so it matters what we believe. 
To study the Bible's teachings on the Trinity gives us great insight into the question that is at the center of our seeking after God. And that is, what is God like himself? What's he like? Right? You get to know another human being. What do we start asking? What are they like? What do they like? What do they not like? What's their personality like? What's their typing like? When we come to God who is himself person and personhood and defines in himself personhood, our chief question ought to be, what's he like? When we start talking Trinity, we get to ask the question, what's God like? Let me give you a quick definition. And when I'll post these notes later, you'll see the source. It's from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Mind blown. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through some scripture passages. And we can't do all of them because there's Genesis to Revelation. So we're just going to limit it down to a scope of a few. And then we're going to draw some implications of Trinitarian theology. The first passage I want to give to you is Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. And by the way, if you're really versed in your Bible, you're already thinking of passages that you would stand up here and talk about. Well, I invite you to do it. Just kidding. We only have so much time. So we're going to do some choice ones that take us in the direction I want us to go. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. We want to affirm what the Bible teaches about the oneness of God. God is one. God is not three gods. There is one God who has three distinct persons in his oneness. And here's the passage that helps us to see God's oneness. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And by the way, side note, I love that our students and our children are in here today. Here's why. You want to grow a person's mind, you set it on infinity. You want to grow their ability to think, you set it on infinity. You want to hinder it, you set it on temporal things. If you want to know the disciplines of this life, math and science and technology, you set your mind beyond it on the infinity that created it, and then you can know the disciplines of created order. That makes sense? So we begin learning created order by learning the God who made it. We don't start in creation and think we're going to figure it out. We begin with God who made all things. And just know this. As you stretch your mind to learn what the Bible teaches, there are going to be moments where it does not make sense. It defies explanation. Don't try to go beyond it at the moment. Just revel in the glory and let the Lord develop. Does that make sense? So it's good that your mind is going to stretch. To think on the infinity of God is to help you develop the ability to think, period. So it's good for you this morning, okay? You good? Alright, here we go. The Lord is one. So we know that from the scriptures. God is one. But then Jesus comes and Jesus teaches us that He is the God of the Old Testament. So one of the things we can't do is make this fake distinction between the God of the Old Testament and Jesus, who's somehow better than or an evolution of the God of the Old Testament. God of the Old Testament seems to be mean and vindictive, and Jesus is all about peace, happiness, joy. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't let us do that. Jesus says He is that God. 
As a matter of fact, John is going to tell us in his three epistles at the end of the New Testament canon that Jesus is the one who led Israel out of Egyptian captivity. And so what Jesus says helps us to see the nature and character of God, learn what he's like. So the Lord is one. But listen to Jesus' dialogue with the Pharisees in John 8, 48 to 59. This is a longer passage, but it bears, uh, we need to read it. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Could not be a more relevant question. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. Wow. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. Just one reading of the New Testament helps you destroy this funky image of Jesus as never saying anything harsh. He just called them liars. He said, liar, liar, pants on fire. Tus pantalones en fuego mucho. I've been working. I say that to the boys a lot in there when I catch them. Tus pantalones. Working on their Spanish, right? Tus pantalones en fuego mucho. If I say I didn't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's Yahweh. And they know what he meant because look at the next sentence. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Law for blaspheming God is being stoned to death. They knew what he just said. You do too. He just said, I know God the Father. You don't know him. If you knew him, you would know me. So before Abraham was, yes, I am. I am Yahweh. So here is the Bible teaching us God is one. And here is Jesus in the flesh saying, I am him. But speaking of him distinctly as the Father and himself distinct. And then lest it get any more explicit, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So here's the baptismal formula. Baptism in the Bible is the act, the symbol of changing teams. It is the confession. It is what happens to identify with Jesus. When one repents and believes the gospel... They are then following Jesus in the physical act of baptism, which puts on display dying with Jesus and being raised with Jesus, being in Christ. 
And it is the physical exclamation that we have just changed teams. We went from team dark to team light. Team death to team life. And Jesus says, when you baptize them, do it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Meaning at the root and core of our proclamation of who God is, is the nature, identity, and character of God as being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another set of passages is in John chapter 14 through John chapter 16. We're not going to read all of that. I'm just going to give you some highlights very quickly. In these passages, Jesus teaches about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And how the Holy Spirit's job is distinct from His job and the Father's job. How they are yet one and lift each other up. So you see three yet one. You see distinction. You see equality. And you see inside God's nature submission to. Which becomes the basis of our submission to one another. Because we're created in the Trinitarian image of God. And if inside the Trinitarian nature of God there's submission. It is not evil for us to submit to one another. Because that's what image bears the triune God do for each other. We'll get to some applications here in just a moment. But Trinity has massive implications on us as image bearers. Who are Trinitarian in our image. So John 14, 8 to 11. Philip said to him. Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. In other words, Jesus didn't go in rogue. Jesus never went rogue. John 5, 19, Jesus said, I don't even speak what I want to. I speak what the Father tells me to speak. So Jesus never spoke out from under the Father's authority. He stayed up underneath the Father's authority in his entire ministry. Here's your question for application. Off script, do you submit to authority? If you don't submit to authority, you're acting like a Unitarian and you're acting like a demonic vision of God. There's no such thing as lack of submission to authority. If you don't submit to authority, you can't be a Christian. In fact, y'all, when you start thinking about the nature of God, submission is key to being Trinitarian. And, and the unfortunate thing in our worldview, we've heard submission as negative. We've heard it as bad. And what we have to do is let the scriptures renew our minds and see it how God is in himself. Three yet one submissive. I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the accounts of the works themselves. Then John 14, verse 15 to 18. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father. I, distinct from the Father, will ask the Father. And He will give you... i got, I got to go nerdy because this is important. Alas parakletos, another helper. That's what I... Translator guy. Can't help it. Alas, distinct from heteros. Heteros, another of the same kind. Alas, another of a different kind. Right? You don't get that, but there are two words for another. In Greek, alas and heteros. This is not heteros, not another of the same kind, another of a different kind. It's alas, parakletos. Another helper, parakletos, helper, guide, counselor. He said, he will give you another one different from me to be with you forever. So the Spirit isn't Jesus. The Spirit is the Spirit. And the Father sends the Spirit. 
distinct from Jesus to be with us forever. Even the spirit of truth. So the spirit's ministry is truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. The world can't know him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18. Personal pronoun shifts from he to I. Grammar matters. Grammar matters. Grammar matters. Right? Listen to this. Verse 18. He will be with you and will be in you. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Woo! Glory! He sent us the Spirit. Who's the Spirit? Jesus' very presence with us, yet distinct from Jesus. Mind blown. Listen, and you can't ascend to it. You can't figure it out. Here's what you do. You worship in response. You revel in. You glory in. You delight in. You are happy in. I don't know if you've noticed this this morning, but... But God's granted freedom to worship this morning. You notice the atmosphere is sweet and rich. You notice how you sung differently? That's the Lord. And, 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 and He's inviting us into this glory of knowing who He is this morning. And so I just want to prepare you as we get ready to respond and worship in a few minutes. Don't miss this shot. These moments are rare. When the air is thin and good and rich, like Lewis said on, in Aslan's country. Right here you see and you know it. It makes sense. But you're going to have to go back down into Narnia where it's thick. And you're going to forget the signs. We have a moment he's given us where we can see. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. John 14, 23. Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my father will love him. So if he loves me, he's going to keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So who's with you this morning? Who's in you? Holy Spirit. And because Holy Spirit's in you, who do you have in you? Father and Son. you got a Trinitarian presence sitting over you and in you right now if you're in Christ. Revel in that. John 14, 25 and 26. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send to you in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. So this isn't on Holy Spirit, but it's important because it's about Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's job is to remind us of what Jesus taught us and represent the name of Jesus. Which, by the way, another I got I got so many applications. If you're ever in a place where Holy Spirit is exalting Holy Spirit, it's not Holy Spirit, it's demonic. Holy Spirit never exalts himself, he always exalts Jesus. So if it's always about the Holy Spirit, you've missed the Holy Spirit. His job is to stay hidden. And lift up Jesus. Which is why we say Jesus when we have God taught, right? You understand the implications on Trinitarian theology? You just start working it out. It's important. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, 13 and 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So will Holy Spirit keep truth from you? No, he'll guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Oh, wow, so he doesn't do his own thing. He's under authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. You see this inner Trinitarian thing happening here? I've got the Father. The Father gives to me. I glorify the Father. The Spirit glorifies me so that what I, the Father's given me, I give back to the Father. The Spirit makes it known. And there's just this inner Trinitarian glory happening. This is holy ground, by the way. It's almost moments where you kind of feel a little Moses moment in a burning bush. You just take off your shoes and, and prepare yourself to walk into the presence of God. When you're talking this kind of stuff in, in, in the Bible and you get in these passages, these are holy things. That this inner Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, completely eternal, completely dependent on one another, yet one God, same essence, eternally existing. That out of their very nature, they create. Which we'll get to because we're, we're the apex of that and creating that image. It's beautiful. This is holy stuff. Here's a little Daniel 7, 9 to 14. I'm not going to read all of this. This is Daniel looking forward. And he's contrasting Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom with the kingdom of the Ancient of Days. And so he says here, as I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is God. This is Yahweh. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. You start looking and thinking about Revelation and the image John sees. He's looking at the same God. Because it's the same God. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And a thousand thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment. And the books were open. Then I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. As I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire as the rest of the beast and dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time and i saw in night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples nations language should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed and lo and behold Jesus comes all through the gospels and says this crazy thing I am the son of man where was Jesus getting that from hmm. was Jesus making this up or you think he's preaching from the text he's preaching from the text Luke twenty-two sixty-six to 71 this is just one example when the day came the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes and they led him away to their council and they said if you are the Christ tell us but he said to them if I tell you you will not believe and if I ask you you will not answer but from now on the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God so they said are you the son of God then and he said to them you say that I am then they said what further testimony do we need we have heard it ourselves from his own lips they knew what he said they're saying, you just condemned yourself. You just said you're the Son of Man. They knew who the Son of Man was. Remember, they're students of this book. And what Jesus just said is, I'm the one who is given from the ancient of days an everlasting kingdom. I'm the king. They knew what he said. They knew what he meant. That he is Jesus, the Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And then finally, our last passage, and we're going to get to some quick applications. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Jesus, the preexistent creator and present sustainer. 
He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Prototokos. Stop. Hang on here. This word is important. When we read firstborn in English, we have a tendency to think created, born from. English does not do this word justice. There's no good English word for it. Firstborn's best we got. Okay? Just best we got. But it doesn't say, because there's just no way to say what prototokos means. Literally, it is preeminent one. It is the prototype, the base, the blueprint, the chief one, the head one, right? The prototokos. He, Jesus, is the preeminent one, the supreme one, the blueprint of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Holy ground. Jesus. And so that's just scratching the surface of of infinite reality. So here's what I want to do. I just want to hand that off to you and say go meet with Jesus. About what God's like. You're priests the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you if you're in Christ. So go meet with Him. And dive into the infinite pool of the nature and character of God. And I promise you, you won't ever come up and you won't ever recover from it. And once you see, you can never unsee and you'll never be the same. So what are some applications? What are some things we can draw out of this as we get ready to draw this bad boy to a close? Number one, because... We are created in the image of God. We are created in a Trinitarian image. Therefore, everybody in this room, every human on this planet, are glorious creatures full of dignity. Don't be surprised when non-Christian image bearers, because the image of God in man isn't taken away or destroyed. It's merely broken because of the fall. So you will find Trinitarian image bearers doing glorious things because they're created in the image of the Creator God. Jesus. Which is why we maintain that all of the best of the best ought to come out of the community of the kingdom of God because at its apex we have been redeemed and that Trinitarian image is being fully restored. Broken in them, being restored in us. Therefore, because we're glorious beings, full of dignity, get on the front lines and be the solvers of ills. Because you have the God who made gravity dwelling in you. He made the cell. He made ribosomes. He made atoms. He made it all and He dwells in you. And you have infinite capacity. Jesus even said, greater works than I do, you will do because I go to the Father. We need to get out of this mentality that somehow we're weak church and somehow we have less and that we are prone to difficulty and suffering and we're just being crushed. No, we are not. When Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail over you, gates aren't advancing. They're fixed. Gates don't go anywhere. You're moving somewhere. What Jesus is saying is that we will not be overcome by those stationary things, but we will overcome them because the kingdom is advancing. 
You're creating the Trinitarian image of Creator God. Take that up and run with it to the nations. Preach the gospel. Fix what is broken and heal and say to them the kingdom of God has come near. That's straight out of the mouth of Jesus. You don't need a plan for that. You just need to do it. And this mighty Trinitarian image of God and dignified humans advances His kingdom. It also gives the implication that we must treat each other differently than the rest of the world treats other image bearers. I'm not going to dive into the political implications of humanity being created in the Trinitarian image of God, but you just need to go and work that out politically. I just want you to come to this... I will say, you need to come to this conclusion. You have no representative in any government on the face of the planet. You have one king, you have one worldview, and you have one manual that tells you how to do it. This is the manual. Jesus is the king. We're his people. And the best we got, the very best we got, is somebody just barely playing games between aisles to try to pander to you to get you to vote for them. Don't play the game. Demand Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Don't sacrifice your conscience on the altar of power. Jesus has all power and authority, and you and I need none of it. His kingdom is coming and advancing with or without us. So go with Him and let them sort their mess out. You figure that out. You figure out how to walk in that. But understand that humans are to be treated with dignity because they're made in the Trinitarian image of God. And that ought to affect absolutely everything we do toward other people. A good, solid pro-life position is not just the baby in the womb at conception, but the aged person in the deathbed at the end of life. And every person in between who can't find a home. Do you know in the law... God demands that for the alien, we not glean up to the edges of our field to leave margin for them to work as image bearers who find dignity and work so that they can earn a living. How do you practice that personally? Do you leave margin so that people who don't have can have from you? Because how God thinks about the image bearer who don't have. What are the political implications of that? You go figure that out. But that's a Trinity issue. It's a Trinitarian issue. And as Christians, we bring the only full orb perspective to it. Therefore, we need to be engaged. I just, I said I wasn't going to. Some of y'all need to get in the world. And you need to jump in feet first. And you need to be that pariah standing off in the corner screaming, thus says the Lord, in the political spectrum. Because we don't have anybody doing that. Power corrupts absolutely. And the best intentioned person gets in there and sacrifices themselves to a lobbyist. Or to some other agenda. I'm looking for that man or that woman who will stand over there as a Deborah. As an Ezekiel. And say, thus says the Lord. And you can hate me, but I will not move. That may be some of you in this room. Secondly, as Trinity is unity and diversity and perfect fellowship, Christians are to be in unity and diversity in following and reflecting the very nature of God. We are to be loving and in loving relationship with one another in covenant community as the New Testament dictates because of the eternal purpose of God He's achieving in the church. There are 52 one another's in the New Testament. You can't do one another's unless you're with one another's. And then you've got to find out who the one another's are. The Bible teaches us the one another's are the people that you are in covenant community with and submission to one another under God's submissive authority of New Testament leadership. 
Lest you think the Trinitarian image of God displayed in the church is temporal, I want to read a passage to you, Ephesians 2, 11 through chapter 3. Um, yeah, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to give you a sample here. So basically, it's Ephesians 2, 11, and then chapter 3, verse 7 to 12. And when I post these notes, you'll see it. I don't know if, if that sounded confusing, you'll see it. Of the gospel, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, so that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What Paul's describing to the church at Ephesus here is the multinational, multi-ethnic kingdom of God in which the barriers have been broken down because they are now in Christ. And he said this was according to his eternal purpose that he achieved in that church. Listen to me. Evangelism's temporary. Missions, temporary. Church, eternal. This was his plan. This was pre-fall. God's plan that people from all nations, all backgrounds would be unified in Christ together in a local church. And this is an eternal plan of God. This was his eternal purpose. Meaning that, that ought to jump up on our priority list to the top. You start with eternal temporal next, right? Does that make sense? We're on the eternal purposes of God here. So through the church, this Trinitarian reality of unity and distinction and one another submission to while being one is only played out in the church. This is why the New Testament is clear. That we can't be in fellowship with God and not in fellowship with each other. It's a Trinitarian issue. i got to go. Clock just turned off. Number three, avoid analogies. As our friends Connell and Donald have helped us see. Please don't use analogies. When I used to teach systematic theology, when we got to the Trinitarian section, I would just, I cut, we shut analogies down. You don't, uh, you don't analogize infinity, you revel in it. And so what I want you to do is just revel in it. Don't try to explain it, just receive it and revel in it and worship and dive in. Marvel. Do you know marveling at God is an act of worship? Sitting in awe is an act of worship. So do that. The church is the one place, this is number four on applications, that fellowship of the kingdom of the Trinitarian God and is the place where unity and diversity in a community of equality displays the what the Old Testament calls the shalom of God restored, order restored. Things put right. Things are only put right Inside Trinitarian reality in the church. Governmentally, the West erred by highlighting the individual's rights over the whole. So we have the more powerful few can rule the less powerful whole. Governments in the East chose communism and exalted the many and the nation above the individual. So we even see in created order the ignoring of this Trinitarian reality of equality, unity, diversity. The only place you see that perfectly lived out in the scriptures is the New Testament church. And it is the eternal plan of God. So I say again, dive into that. 
enjoy that. Number five, we learned that the Trinitarian God is love. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If Trinitarian reality in its essence is love, Father loves the Son, Son loves the Spirit, Spirit loves the Father, and they all love one another perfectly, and we're creating that image, and we're in covenant with each other, what we ought to do, love. We love, we love hard, we love deep, we love strong, it has no end to it. We love. We don't. We love. And finally, we recognize that because we're creating the Trinitarian image of God, that stamp is on everything He created. It's absolutely everything He created. And because on everything he created, there's, there's no lack of us being able to look and see that the heavens declare the glory of God. And day to day pours forth speech. And if creation is screaming the glory of God, what do you think the apex of created order ought to do? Scream the glory of God. By the way, this, this is why. When you talk about God's glory and God's beauty and majesty, this is the root of biblical worship. How mm, I left my phone down there. I, I, I screenshotted something. I'm going to get it. I'm going to read something to you. This is not on script. Thank you, Jennifer. Oop, need to find. Here it is. I shared this with the pastors this morning. We glory in, in, in God in our worship. We live in, in, the, in a Western context of Christianity where much of our worship experience is dictated by the entertainment value. Was it good? Did I like it? Did it meet my need? The Bible knows none of that when it comes to the worship of the Lord. Just read the Psalms. Have you ever read an imprecatory psalm? You know, imprecatory psalms are those psalms that are uncomfortable that say like, smash our enemy's teeth in their mouth. And we, we don't preach those passages because... Well, that don't preach good, right? Do you know those are songs that are crying out for the justice of God for a people who have had injustice done to them, which, by the way, which is one of the reasons minorities gravitate to those Old Testament passages because they scream something that majority culture does not get. You don't know what the desire for justice is until you've had it withheld from you. Which is why people oppressed, such as Israel, under the mighty hand of the Philistines, or under the hand of Egypt, under the hand of Babylon, would cry out to the Lord, Lord, rescue us. We cry all day long to you, and yet our enemies seem to triumph. Crush them, Lord. We, we hear that as weird and strange, because the reality is we're on the end of that that might need to be crushed sometimes. And so what we do is we create songs that are about our personal experience. And we sing things that are about our personal experience, our personal joy. And we even in the West have the whole thing about people going to where they can get a better deal. It's cooler. It's better. Just look at the megachurch movement. Right? What happens? They do better stuff. So what happens? We go there because our kids get better stuff. Our youth get better stuff. We get better stuff. And it's just better. The Bible knows none of that. None of that. It's entertainment. It's consumption. 
I was just scrolling the Twitter last night after Georgia beat down Vanderbilt. <laughs> looking for sports stuff, and, and Kevin DeYoung had to ruin it for me. And here's what he said. Pastors, parents, worship leaders, are you teaching any songs that can be sung a cappella around a hospital bed in 50 years? Now, listen, I'm not poo-pooing on anything. Don't hear me. I'm not, I'm not doing that. What I want us to understand is our worship isn't an issue of me getting a service. It's me offering up to the Lord praise. Offering up to the Lord something of value to Him. Something of worth that comes from a heart that's glorying in His majesty and His inexplicableness. And those are the kind of things that I've seen when people pass from this life into the eternal kingdom. Love to have sung over them. We, this morning I couldn't, my sister's singing over my father as he passed Beulah Land. And I'm going, dear God, I used to make fun of that stuff and now I'm getting there and I'm like, that's beautiful, that's glorious, right? But how many elevation worship songs are we going to sing around our deathbeds as we enter the eternal kingdom? And there are things that are to be done in our worship that's all about Jesus, not about us. And I promise you, when I'm passing from this earth, I don't need to be entertained. I need to step into the hands of the Master well. And, and I, think, I think it'd be good for us to begin to practice that here and now. Right? Friday night doesn't come at 7.30 kickoff without some, some hard bumps and bruises Monday through Thursday. Football culture, sorry. Right, And so we have to bump ourselves around a little bit, mess up a little bit, because we're going to Friday night. And we've got to practice some of those things. And they don't always go good. And they're not entertaining, but they're infinitely glorious. And so we want to highlight the gloriousness of the Trinitarian nature of God and enjoy. And enjoy. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to practice, okay? Father, in Jesus' name, we want to know you better. We pray you take your word and make it a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And help us to hide it deep in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Help us to know you and walk with you here in this time of response and song. Lord, don't let this time be about us. Destroy that, I pray in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that there's been some manner of glory that's captivated our hearts this morning. I ask that you would pull that off somehow. Lord, if I've misspoke, misrepresented you in any way, I pray that you would forgive me, have mercy on me. But don't let that stick in our thinking. We want to get you right. We want to do justice to who you are. And so what I pray that only what's right would stick and things that aren't would just go away. So would you do that now? Lord, let us taste a little bit of liberty and freedom as we sing to you and make much of you and enjoy you. Would you be glorified? And Lord, through that, would you give us great relief and great release and great joy and great freedom this morning? Be magnified, be exalted, be lifted high. We pray in Jesus' name.